When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And so, ladies and gentlemen, it has come down to this. As if those of us who knew why we had to leave the European Union would not one day see this coming. As if we did not warn of the authoritarian nature of European Union rule. As if we didn't tell you so. Well now, ladies and gentlemen, it is very clear what is actually going on out there. The mask has well and truly slipped and the fangs have now been exposed. Rather like that scene from Alien I was just describing to Julia Hartley Brewer. You know the one where Sigourney Weaver's standing there in that huge, horrible, kind of gaping jaw opens and the teeth are about to envelop her entire head. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the European Union, right? Uh, We know the wolf has now cast off its sheep's clothing and what is standing before us is a pretty unedifying sight. Who knew that the unelected bureaucrats of the EU would put their own demagoguery before the lives of its own people? Who could have predicted that a former Cypriot psychologist, now grandly referred to as the EU's health commissioner, would threaten Britain with a block on receiving vaccine doses to save lives just because their own arrangements have been proved to be so completely and utterly useless? Make no mistake, the reason the EU is in trouble and lagging way behind the UK in the vaccine rollout is entirely due to their incompetence, their over-regulation and downright bureaucracy. Now they're proving to be nasty as well. What an absolute horror show. We'll be seeking the approval and the opinion of Labour leaver Brendan Chilton. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We're also joined coming up by Dr Simon Clark for an update on what looks like the failing, uh, the falling COVID infection numbers and an explanation of what the different vaccines will do. Coming up later, we'll be taking a peek across the border to ask Kevin McKenna what on earth is going on in the Nicholas Sturgeon Alex Salmond affair and what does it mean for the SNP? And as ever, we want to hear from you too. What are you hearing from your schools, from your work and from your friends? Could we really be looking forward to some kind of easing of restrictions in February? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Is it any wonder it is Talk Radio? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So you will have awoken this morning to the dreadful news. Front page of the Times. Warn us before jabs go to Britain. EU tells Pfizer. Basically, uh, in a fit of peak, the European Union has decided that they're getting so few uh, vaccines and they're managing to roll out so few vaccines because they didn't organise themselves as well uh, as this government in this country did with Boris Johnson at the helm and Matt Hancock. You know, we've given them plenty of hard times for not doing things right. What they have got right is the vaccine rollout. And we should be very, very happy that we've got Boris Johnson in charge 
in this country and not the European Union. Because if we had, uh, we wouldn't be getting as many vaccines out there as we have done. We wouldn't be hitting the targets of 6 million, 7 million, 8 million uh, as they're going to be going. Instead, uh, we'd be sitting around waiting for the EU to kind of grant us the, the drippings from the rich man's table. Absolutely extraordinary. So as far as the EU is concerned, they are putting lives uh, ahead uh, of anything else so that they're saying, you know, it doesn't really matter if you don't get vaccines. We are telling you that we may block the export of certain vaccines from the European Union into Britain. If you want to save lives, that's tough. Marvellous. What a great message. Let's talk to Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. Brendan, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. I mean, I don't think I'm over-egging the pudding here to suggest that the EU uh, is really proving itself to be a pretty nasty uh, neighbour. Well, absolutely. And even The Guardian have taken a critical tone this morning, so it must be true. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, it really is quite extraordinary. And it actually demonstrates what the benefits of having a nation state are in charge of our vaccine rollout rather than a supranational organisation. It's too big. It's too bloated. It can't adapt and respond to individual nations' needs. And so what's it doing? It's blocking. It's being protectionist. And this is exactly why uh, the United Kingdom decided to leave. Now, I'm no fan of the government, as I'm sure you could appreciate. Uh, I'm a Labour Labour member. Yes. But actually, to be fair to them, they've rolled the vaccine out. And we've got one of the highest vaccination rates, not just in Europe, but in the whole of the world. My, my dear old grandmother had it the other week. So I'm delighted it's being rolled out. Mm. But no, it just shows us we were right last year and we should never rejoin the block. No, absolutely. And and this is, you know, as, as they say in, in sort of philosophical uh, circles, you don't really find out uh, what people are really like until you're in a bit of a crisis with them and you see how they behave. And if this is how they're going to behave, um, when they talk about, for example, rolling out the vaccine fairly, um, but then in the same breath they talk about vaccine nationalism, it's almost as if they've got this kind of obsession with individual countries and the, the problem being individual countries when they don't actually see that the problem is their block. Absolutely right. I mean, the European Union is hundreds of millions of people in population, so many different countries, so many different territories. It's almost impossible for them to roll out a uniform uh, uh, system of vaccination. What they should have done is said, look, this is something best handled at the nation state level because you've got huge countries like Germany with a population of 80 million and then right down uh, countries like Austria with a population of 6 million. Mm. With, you know, Austria is covered in mountains. Germany is relatively flat. Uh, it's far more difficult to deal with these different countries because they are so unique. And this is why supranational models of government like the European Union do not work because they cannot adapt and cannot relate to individual circumstances in individual countries. It's like the old Soviet Union, Mm. applying one model to all when they're so diverse, it just can't work. Well, exactly. And I'm told that one of the reasons that they were so slow in getting the vaccinations organised was partly because of their uh, over-regulated market system and partly also because they were concentrating on the price of the vaccine rather than actually getting it to people. Well, well, again, Mike, it was ever thus. I mean, we had the debacle a few weeks ago of the French shutting their borders to their own lorry drivers that were stuck in the UK. It just shows you what the European Union is like. Mm. And you're absolutely right. Their over-regulated, over-costed system of doing things is delaying the safety and well-being of citizens of the European Union. And I hope that citizens in those countries will wake up and smell the coffee on this Mm. and realise that actually outside of this block, which is operating in its own interest, not concerned about the health of the population, it's concerned about the European Union showing face and looking good because they've had an appalling record 
on delivering the vaccine to their populations. And so uh, this is really just demonstrating to leavers what we already knew and to remainers in this country who are still fighting and want to go take us back, that actually we're better being in command of our own destiny and in control of our own vaccine programme. Absolutely. And also how arrogant of them as a group of uh, individuals who are never elected to any job at all, these commissioners, right, starting to dictate to companies, multinational companies, no less. Um, I mean, what sort of a message does that send to any company that might want to settle itself inside of the EU? Oh, sorry, you can't. Well, if you want to come and, and have a company in the EU, we'll be the ones telling you what you'll be able to do and what you won't be able to do. Well, quite right. I'm sure this health commissioner is a very lovely lady, but I haven't heard of her till this morning. No. Uh, and now all of a sudden she's got this massive power to determine who gets vaccinated and who doesn't. Right. Yet she's not had a single vote cast in her name, at least over here. Uh, if we don't like our government, we can remove them. Mm. Uh, but over there, the poor people of Europe are stuck with these incompetent people. And you're absolutely right. What message does it send to international business, to investors and to competitors that in the middle of a crisis, uh, which the whole world uh, is engulfed in, although I'm opposed to lockdowns, we, the, the, the virus is a real thing and we've got to combat it. What message does it send to the world that the European Union's immediate instinct is protectionism? It's mm. build walls, it's put restrictions on when we should all be cooperating together, whether you're inside the EU or outside the EU. And they've really shown their true colours on this. They really have, because it looks petulant, it looks petty and it looks pathetic. You know, three Ps to the EU, as far as I'm concerned, because in the end, you know, I'm not even sure that they've got the power to control multinational companies in this way. I mean, what if Pfizer just said, well, I'll tell you what, if that's the way you want to play it, we'll just leave uh, the EU altogether and we'll go and set up shop in Britain. Well, I think that's quite right. And of course, uh, President Macron this year is facing a difficult set of elections in France. Mm. And the French have got one of the uh, poorest uh, levels of vaccination. And I'm pretty sure uh, that within a few weeks, or probably even today, uh, the uh, the palace in, uh, in Paris, where the president lives, is raging. Uh, because he wants to uh, vaccinate his population, yet he's being told from someone who is above him that he can't. Mm. Similarly, Chancellor Merkel has is facing problems in Germany, uh, growing discontent at the lockdown measures, and she needs to get her population vaccinated. Are these big, powerful countries, France and Germany, going to sit by and allow some piddly little commissioner in Brussels uh, to dictate to them when they can get their vaccine rolled mm. out? I think it's extraordinary. And things are looking a bit dicey over in Amsterdam and in Holland as well, aren't they? There's, there's riots sort of spreading from city to city, anti-lockdown riots. They put a curfew on. Uh, the, the, the authorities are spraying people with water cannon. You know, Europe doesn't look like a very sort of solidly peaceful place at the moment. No, quite right. And there have been some very alarming uh, videos going around on social media over the weekend and yesterday. Uh, I think it's in Holland of uh, policemen aggressively hitting uh, young people sitting down in parks with batons. I mean, this is a real issue uh, for those of us that believe in liberty and freedom and civil rights uh, that across not just uh, Europe, but we, we've had examples of it here, perhaps not to that level of aggression. And there's also been examples in the United States of the authorities clamping down on individuals' right to protest mm. and individuals' right to object. And as, as you guys have experienced at Talk Radio, an individual right to have an opinion, mm. uh, a combination of big government and big tech uh, is not really one that's satisfactory for the future. And we need, as a society, I think, to seriously examine the powers of the state, the powers of big tech, 
and establish new norms for how we can all engage as free citizens in the future. Yeah, and it's very interesting as well, since this story has obviously exploded uh, across our media this morning, uh, the EU are kind of backpedalling a bit. They put up uh, some Irish um, uh, MEP that I heard on uh, a radio station earlier today talking about how oh, these are just negotiations and uh, this is just uh, uh, the normal practice of making sure that you know the company fulfills its contract, blah, 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 blah. Well, actually, no, this is the way that protection rackets operate. You threaten people with something uh, so that they do what you want. Yeah, well, we should perhaps rename her the Don or something, this health commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wake up with, it won't be a horse's head, it'll be a sort of empty needle in the bed. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. morning. Yeah. But it, but, um, but, but it is extraordinary, isn't it? It is absolutely extraordinary. And I think really um, what this is, it's a bunker mentality. Uh, the European Union, uh, as a collective, have abject failed in rolling out the vaccine across the EU member states. You've got small countries like Israel, you've got us in Britain, the United States, all pulling ahead, getting our populations vaccinated. And this is basically uh, EU trying to blame other people because they have failed, which is what they always do. Mm. Um, it's never the fault of the European Union that we've had a migration crisis in Europe. It's never the fault of the European Union that the poor, the southern states of the EU are poorer because of the imposition of the euro. It's not the European Union's fault that Britain had enough and voted to leave. They're never prepared to take responsibility. And really, at some point, they're going to have to. Uh, because the citizens of Europe have suffered just as much as we have with lockdowns and their economies, and they're going to need to recover. And if the EU continue to delay the rollout of the vaccine, the longer it's going to take uh, to get the economies of Europe back up and running. So there are some serious issues here, and the EU's got a lot of questions to answer. Exactly right. And I mean, as far, I'm not expecting you to be uh, knowledgeable of uh, international law in all areas, but I mean, I'm not even sure that oh, good. This, uh, <laughs> uh, this, this, this question of, of, of telling Pfizer that you'll need to, to get permission effectively before you can export anything, I'm not sure there's any legal grounds for that. I, I can't imagine there would be. I mean, they are supplying uh, this vaccine, not just to the European Union, but essentially to, to the whole world. Uh, and I don't think the whole world will simply stand by and say, OK, European Union, you can impose these rules and regulations on this company uh, to the detriment, not just of Britain, but to the rest of the world. Um, I can't see that happening. I can't see President Biden, who's got a plan to vaccinate 100 million Americans within 100 days, mm. sitting by and allowing that to happen. Right. And hopefully, uh, in the course of international relations, uh, this will demonstrate to the Americans that their true friends in Europe are, in fact, the British and not necessarily the European Union. No. Well, the European Union, who clearly uh, will have to now look at all of the various different countries, as you said, which all have very different needs, very different populations, very different um, just geographies apart from anything else, never mind different languages and all the rest of it and different health systems, you know, they're going to have to work out, presumably, in their tiny minds exactly which order people should be getting the vaccines in. Because in this country, we only have to worry about the order of people getting it, i.e. individuals, vulnerable people, the elderly, people working in social care, people working in health care, people working on the front lines of, uh, of, of dealing with the public. They're going to have to presumably work out some kind of very complicated matrix which says, should the people of Italy get it before the people of um, uh, Croatia? You know, should Spain get more uh, than France does? I mean, it's a nightmare for them. 
It is. And of course, they're having to deal with, you know, situations where you've got islands as small as the little Greek islands to the high Alps of Austria and uh, northern Italy, uh, the much older populations in northern Europe compared to southern Europe. Um, it's a right old mess. Mm. And for the European Union, instead of being flexible opening, saying just get the damn thing out there and vaccinate people, their initial reaction is procedure. It's committees, it's regulations, mm. it's making sure the commission looks good. And really, as I say, I think it's going to become quite a political issue, particularly in those countries that have got elections this year and whose co economies have taken quite a battering, just as ours have. Mm. Um, I can't see this existing model of the European Union lasting much longer. Um, it's been in trouble for some time. There's been a great gap between the southern states and the northern states in the European Union. And this COVID crisis, if the populations aren't vaccinated, but the rest of the world manages to move ahead, I think the citizens of the European Union will be up in arms at the failed rollout of this vaccine. Can you imagine as well, Brendan, if it was the other way around and say the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine uh, was being offered to countries around the world or indeed in Europe, uh, as it has been, and Britain and the British government said, no, 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 you can't send it anywhere else uh, until you've asked our permission. Oh, we wouldn't hear the end of it. I mean, the Wokerati and the Twitterati. I like that. The Wokerati. The, yeah, it's good, isn't it? I like <laughs> they would be up that. in arms. Yeah, you go. I might, <laughs> I might uh, put a what's it on that? You know that thing where you can't sell it on. Oh, what, an, um, what, an, e, an EU export ban. I'm going to get one of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean they would literally be up in arms. Yeah, over here. All those people that were previously great supporters of the European Union, while they've observed what's gone on, they're not exactly being critical. But if we did it, we'd be imperialist, we'd be racist, we'd be nationalists, and we wouldn't hear the end of it. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, um, what this has realised realised to all of us is actually Britain is far better off outside. We're doing our bit, not just to vaccinate our population here in the UK, but we're also helping developing countries and the dependent territories as well while the European Union is sitting there fat and bloated and not meeting the international standards that we expect of Western democratic countries looking after their citizens. Absolutely right. Brendan, while I've got you on, let me just ask you about the school situation, because obviously you're active uh, down there in Ashford in Kent. Kent, one of the places that suffered at the hands of, uh, uh, of, of the lockdown back in sort of November time, when, when you suddenly went from tier one to tier three, uh, or tier yes. four rather. Um, what's, the, what's the view down there in, in your part of the world about reopening the schools? Well, I think we need to get schools reopened as soon as possible. Um, children have suffered this year in the UK. I think it's 700 million hours have been lost in total for children in schools. Uh, home parenting is a great challenge for those parents who've got to work uh, at the same time as trying to educate their children. And as I think I've discussed on your show previously, when you've got tight, cramped conditions with lots of families and lots of children, it's impossible to learn. They're not getting the education they need. So I think absolutely right. Let's get our children vaccinated if we can and the teachers. Let's get schools open. I don't see why every school nurse couldn't be responsible for vaccinating the children in the school and getting it done nice and quickly. Most schools have got a school nurse. Mm. Um, we need to get them back. Otherwise, I, I don't want to be crass about this. We will end up with a, a generation of delinquents that are, are behind, that are not able mm. to catch up. And that's not going to help us long term make a success of this country. So get the schools open. Yes, Brendan, very well said. Couldn't agree more with you. Thank you very much indeed. Brendan Children, CEO uh, of the Independent Business Network there, talking absolute sense not only about the European Union, but also about the schools. There is now growing pressure uh, on the government to reopen the schools of this country, not least because of the depression, uh, a 
wave of which is sweeping through our young people, not least because of the crime rates which are going up, because so many young people now uh, are so frustrated by the lockdown uh, that they're taking it out uh, on their fellow citizens. There's so many reasons why we need to find a roadmap out of this particular situation. We've been saying it here at Talk Radio for many weeks. It now looks as though uh, all of the things that we have been saying are being taken up by the government because they realise in and of themselves that they cannot keep this going indefinitely, that of course it has to be done in a safe way. But if we have the vaccinations and if we have the ability uh, to make sure that people can be safer, then what on earth is the reason that we cannot reopen the schools and we cannot lift some of the restrictions in place while keeping others which are important to keep? It makes perfect sense to me and it doesn't mean that you have to completely sell the farm. It doesn't mean that you let rip with the virus. It doesn't mean any of those things. What it does mean is that we actually take a sensible approach, a grown-up approach, one which safeguards not only the health of the nation, but the mental health of our children. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Dr Simon Clark. Simon, how are you? Good morning, Mike. I'm well, thank you. And yourself? Yeah, very well. I'm feeling quite optimistic this week, actually, because as much as the the numbers uh, of people dying last week when when we last spoke were were pretty horrendous, they're still bad, but they seem to be reducing. Um, We seem to be seeing evidence that uh, that infection rates appear to be going down as well. What's your what's your sense of it? Yeah, the the day on day count of new infections is certainly going down. Uh, I think there's perhaps the first evidence maybe of uh, death rates, death numbers coming down, although we might just be in the plateau. I suspect the plateau will last for uh, a few days, very least, possibly a week or so. Mm. Um, but it's a good sign anyway. Any, any slowing down in that increase and any stopping of that increase has to be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as more and more people, I mean, six and a half million vaccines is a pretty uh, impressive number. Uh, and as we continue with that, that march, I mean, there's only the one slight fly in the ointment, I suppose, is, is there is this kind of Pfizer problem of supply because they're trying to sort of figure out their new kind of uh, manufacturing plant, I think, in Europe. But, um, you know, there's no reason to to suspect that that the slowdown needs to be a problem. Uh, No, I I wouldn't have thought so. I would think that the government know exactly how many, or more or less, how many doses of each vaccine they're going to have in the UK by the middle of next month. And that's why they set themselves this pretty tall order but there's there's nothing wrong with being ambitious if you think you can uh, fulfill that ambition then uh, they should go for it that, that uh, looks to be what's happening fingers crossed they'll pull it off yes and it's rather distasteful to see the eu playing politics with this isn't it it is and i think it speaks to a uh, perhaps um, a bit of a recognition that their uh, their europe-wide vaccine purchase program uh, hasn't worked as well as they thought it would do. Um, there was a lot back in the summer of uh, fairly smug commentary, if I can put it like that, from some people, that the Europeans were doing better buying vaccines, which at that time didn't even exist, uh, than the UK was. Mm. And that's really been turned on its head and shown not to be true. And I think in large part it has... Um, perhaps something to do with the fact that they not unreasonably put their eggs into the basket of the Sanofi GSK vaccine, the, the French vaccine, which the development of which has, has not gone terribly well. I mean, they're still working on it. They still may get it to work, but uh, it's not gone as swimmingly as others. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you actually, uh, Simon, about the different types of vaccines. A friend of mine got a vaccine today uh, and was having a conversation about the whole difference between what each of them does and how they can't really be mixed up and all of that. What's Can, can you give us a sort of layman's guide to the different vaccines that are going to be available to us? All right. So the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, which I think will probably come in about a month's time, uh, maybe a little longer. Uh, that that's that they 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 are a little chemical messenger. They're actually quite similar in, in terms of their design, which when you inject it into the muscle cells in your arm, uh, makes those cells produce the virus spike protein. Because the virus spike protein is not something your body normally has, your immune system recognizes it as what we call non-self and generates an immune response to it. So that's direct injection of a chemical messenger. To, to make the protein. Mm. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine uses uh, a, a basically a, a vaccine from monkeys, which cannot replicate, just causes the cold in monkeys. Uh, it's stopped from replicating. That delivers the gene for the spike protein into our muscle cells in a similar way. So again, via a different route, our uh, cells make uh, that spike protein and our immune systems generate a response to it. Okay, and as far as the kind of the uh, the way that they react to the different variants, that's still not really known well. But but we're told that the vaccines can be adapted relatively easily. Uh, yeah, that shouldn't be difficult. I mean, some people have described it as as like uh, amending an email. It's not quite that straightforward, and it's not absolutely guaranteed to work. But um, I, I would I would rate the chances as very high. It shouldn't be too much of a problem. Right. And what are you making of the um, the the, raise, the rising sort of chorus of, of, of voices now for people to get the vaccine ahead of other people? I mean, it, it's a big problem for the EU, obviously, because they have to now work out which countries get it, never mind which people in yeah. those countries get it. But as far as our kind of decision making process is concerned, I mean, it seems to me to be sensible to give the vaccine to people who are more exposed to the public, perhaps, um, than to those who are not. Well, yeah, you have to balance that up against the risk to people who who are in high risk groups. Mm. Um, while you can say, yes, police officers, for example, may be uh, uh, less likely to die than somebody in an elderly age group. Uh, if all your police officers go off sick, you've got a problem for society generally. So that's why the Joint Committee on Vaccines and Immunology exists to weigh that sort of thing up. Right. And as far as the, um, uh, the, the, the new variant that, that Boris Johnson was speaking about last um, Friday, when he suggested, apparently wrongly, that it might be more deadly than the, than the original variant, um, what's, what's the view on that one in the scientific community? Well, I, you know, apparently wrongly depends on who you speak to, which newspapers <laughs> you read. I have to be honest with you, I don't think necessarily we know that it is wrong at this point. Well, I think, um, I think the point is, is that we don't know whether it's any worse. No, we don't. And that's therefore no, well, wrong, isn't it, to say? Um, well, <laughs> you can take that point of view, yeah. Um, the, the, the government will say, well, we need to tell people about it if, if there's an, an issue. Um, I would say that... To be fair to NerveTag, who advised the government on this, they've not put the chances of it being a problem, a thing, if you like, mm. at any greater than evens. Right. Um, but that might just be because the data is not very strong at the moment. Um, it hasn't been around for all that long or mm. hasn't caused that much of a problem for all that long. But initially, we were told that um, 
that it wasn't a problem, that it wasn't more lethal. And that was because we hadn't had experience of it very long. That very that same study has had a chance to look at that, the, the, the infections caused by this variant over a longer period of time and being able to say, oh, well, hang on, actually, there is possibly a problem here. And if that one's right, it's quite a significant problem. It's a bit like trying to focus a pair of binoculars when you're too close to the subject. <laughs> well, a, I mean, a I bit, think that distance a, is useful. It's a pretty good expression. It's a pretty good way to describe the last year of our lives, I think, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like <laughs> through a glass yeah. darkly, you know, what happens next? I mean, as far as the quarantine situation is concerned, I was talking to Simon Calder from The Independent uh, a little bit earlier yeah. in the show. It looks likely that they might bring that in. Um is there any point in doing that now? Because having not done it for the entire year, um, we're told there's something like 50,000 people coming through Heathrow alone on a weekly basis. Um, I mean, I, I, I can see why you would not want that to be happening. But one, I'm not quite sure of the efficacy of now telling people either not to come or just trying to stop it altogether. Uh, the, uh, the reason behind this, I think, is to try and cut down on the importation of variants of the virus that might cause a problem for the vaccine. And of course, any others that might crop up that we don't know about until they're here. Mm. Uh, and while it's true to say that they're here already, importing new cases without knowing it, um, it, it just makes our life more difficult, it just makes it more difficult to keep a lid on those viruses, those strains that will cause an e even greater problem. Mm. But I guess in the end, Simon, if uh, we are told that, that this new variant is that transmissible, it's so transmissible, then as long as people are, are actually mingling in any way, like in supermarkets, it's going to be a problem, isn't it? Uh, well, it can cause a problem, yeah, but the, the whole point behind this is to reduce the number of interactions between people, because just because you meet somebody with the virus doesn't mean you're going to get it, doesn't mm. mean you're going to pick it up from them, even if you stand right up close to them. But the more times you do that, the greater your risks are. Sure. And, and the same can be said the other way around, the, the wearing masks, washing hands, keeping distance, all the rest of it. That doesn't make you virus proof. That doesn't mean you definitely won't pick up the virus. It just reduces your chances. Because mm. whatever happened, I seem to remember back in the early days of, of the first lockdown, we were told that in order to to get the virus, you had to be in pretty close proximity to someone for 15 minutes or longer um, in order to sort of get the virus from them. Was, was that not correct then? No, I think that's probably still the considered opinion. Mm. However, the, the new variant may bring that contact time down. I suspect actually it will. Um, and it may mean keeping two metres, and some people have even suggested three, uh, even more important. Mm. And as far as the whole um, effect outside of coronavirus into the general health of the population, I know it's not really your area, but a piece of the Times today saying depression among children is at frightening levels doctors are saying and we we get calls every day and i talk to parents every day about how their kids are becoming more kind of withdrawn uh, less less uh, outgoing more anxious you know, man, it's a massive problem for the nation isn't it it is it's a huge problem um and uh you know it it, it saddens me when when people uh point to um lockdown and say they don't work but it also saddens me when people are overly enthusiastic for lockdowns which mm. i think some people are yeah. um you know I, I consider myself to be a centrist on this um and, and uh you know we do have to have regard 
for all the other factors that um, that make up the decision that the politicians mm. have to make. Yes. No, I think that's certainly been my position all the way through, that, you know, of course, you want to safeguard the health of people who might die from coronavirus, but at the same time, you can't ignore um, any what might no, be regarded as, as collateral damage to the society either. Absolutely. I'd agree with that entirely. Yeah, thank you. Simon, as far as the um, the kind of the next stage is concerned, I mean, if we continue to see numbers falling... Um, what would that tell you? Because I know the government has said what they'd like to do is when they next lift this lockdown, they don't particularly want to have to go back and do another one. Um, well, that I mean, presumably that will be helped by the time of year, um, by the, 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 the warmth of the, of, of the, of the, of the days and, and the sunshine and all the rest of it. But I mean, I mean, can you see that February could be a bit of a turning point? I think February will start to get things under control, but the number, the amount of virus circulating the population is still going to be quite high. Uh, I don't think it will be driven down that much. I think it will be March before they start to to really look at being able to lift things, yeah. lift restrictions. And I mean, as far as the whole situation goes with the new, I mean, we're going to have three vaccines pretty much very soon. And you and I have talked yeah. about this before. I think you've said 70% um, in terms of the, uh, uh, the herd immunity figure that you'd like to reach. What's your understanding of how many people have now been infected in the country with coronavirus? Oh, that's you've got me there. It's about fifteen to twenty percent, I think. Right. So we're still well, some fifteen fair to twenty percent of sixty million. Uh, yep. Um, and uh, but we don't know how long that's lasted. Yeah. For, though that's quite uh, a big is number, though, isn't it? People, it is a big number. Yeah, but uh, there is evidence that people who've got um got uh, infected in the first wave, um, uh, their, their immunity is waning mm. um we don't know how high if you like that immunity has to be um we, we just don't know about that mm. um, and of course when when people talk about so many percent of the population need to be vaccinated what they actually mean is that so many percent of the population need to be immune and we know that none of these vaccines are 100 percent effective they yeah. never are no of course dr simon clark great to talk to you thank you very much indeed virology expert microbiologist at the university of reading um very sensible point of view on this as well because i think the more sense that we get out there from this particular show from this particular radio station the better because what we need um are people like simon to say look yes we need to safeguard the population, but let's not forget about the rest of the population uh, who are being damaged by this, not least the youngsters uh, who can't go to school, uh, the teenagers who have no hope of what they're going to be doing in the future, the people who uh, are unable to operate their businesses because they've been shut down by the government, the people who we thought we call uh, the forgotten, uh, the freelancers uh, who have been left outside of the kind of furlough system, the people who would like to be able to start up new businesses but are unable to do so. The people um, who are being made unemployed because of this lockdown and because of this terrible reaction by the government economically uh, and physically as well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Time to say a very good afternoon to Roger Layton. Roger, hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. I know you are very much at the forefront of uh, uh, of the education business. You're at the sharp end of it, as we say. Uh, you, uh, I know, have organised an awful lot of uh, of the home schooling and the home learning that's going on at the moment. Um, but it's been going on for a long time, Roger, and I think it's now becoming clear um, that it's no substitute for having schools open as usual. It really isn't. Um, schools have got much better at this as the months have gone on. They're really well organised. They know how to deliver the best possible um, education online. But it's never going to be the same as face to face, is it? No, same it really... with meetings. You know, we all know a meeting online is never the same. You don't get the body language. You don't get the interaction. You don't get the immediate response that mm. you get. No, exactly right. So what's the answer then, Roger? Because clearly, you know, the Prime Minister wishes to reopen the schools. Obviously, there's scientific evidence against him being able to do that now. But I mean, listening to some of the arguments from from both sides, it seems to me that there are some who are so cautious that they would never actually reopen schools as long as there's a risk that that kids might either get the infection or might pass the infection on. And I don't think there's ever going to be a point at which we can guarantee that's not going to happen. No, um, and, and I think we need to take a, a, a measured risk-based approach to this. We've got to balance the risks that are inherent of kids being at home and not in school against the risks of them coming into school. Hmm. Um, I think probably the scientific evidence is moving towards saying that younger children, primary age children, ought to be able to come back earlier than the older ones. And they obviously are the ones who have the most difficulty sometimes um, dealing with online learning. Yeah. So I think there's an argument to say, if the scientific evidence is showing that the younger ones can come back, let's do that as mm. soon as we can. Maybe after half term, certainly before Easter, could we possibly could. Right. I mean, certainly, I mean, we speak to people, as I say, all the time about their uh, troubles and travails at home. And, and one of our regular contributors, actually, has got two primary school aged children. And she's basically been in touch with the school and said, look, I can't do the homeschooling with them anymore because she has to work from home. She has to supervise both of them. And despite the fact that, you know, they get set work, they're not of an age to be left completely on their own to do it. You know, so it's very difficult for a lot of people. 
I, I totally agree. Look, my wife is downstairs with a nine-year-old right. <laughs> trying to so do her work. So you've escaped to get on the radio. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Next. <laughs> I do do my share. I do do my share. Of course share, you do. I, I know believe. exactly what you say. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, it's very tough. I mean, I've got two teenage boys um, and they really are... Um, pretty well behaved when it comes to doing the work but but they don't always do it in the way that i suppose they should um they don't always dedicate themselves to um you know they, they're not getting up at the same time in the morning they're not getting dressed in the same way as they would if they were going to school and also more damaging i think is not so much the academic side but just the social side of seeing their mates you know and seeing their friends and doing things together that teenagers do yes and all the extracurricular activities that go on in school, the sport. Yeah. I mean, that that's a particularly important one, you know, that, that most kids now are not going to be getting much exercise, are they? Um, and no. that, that, you know, that's not a problem for a, a few weeks, but it's now, you know, for many, almost a whole year, isn't it? Right. That's going to take its toll as well. So you're right. There's a whole range of things outside the classroom that they're missing out on. Yeah. And, and I always like to know from your side, Roger, what the teachers are saying, because we hear again from a lot of teachers, many of them say, look, we'd rather be back at work. We want to be back at work. We don't wish to be prevented from going back to work. So just show us where we can be as safe as possible. Show us what the precautions could be that we're not doing, that we could do more of. But also, I'm looking in the Times today uh, about teachers who are not at greater risk from the virus, right? So, like, social care workers and nurses are at a very high risk, um, but teachers aren't really. Yeah, I think that varies hugely depending on what type of children you're dealing with. For instance, if you're in a special school, you're almost dealing in the same way as a, a medical professional mm. or um, a social care worker would with those these special needs children. Right. If you're dealing with sixth formers, yeah, you can distance yourself. It's a lot easier to deal with. So I think it varies from, from phase to phase. Look, the best thing that could happen on that side would be to get teachers vaccinated, wouldn't mm. it? Well, that's what um, I think, I, yeah. But then, of course, yeah. there are certain people in certain unions who say, oh, well, that doesn't protect them any more than uh, if they weren't vaccinated, which is a slightly nebulous argument, as far as I'm concerned, because it does... I've not heard that one. Oh, yeah. I... No, they, because, yeah, because, well, because the problem with the vaccine is, is it doesn't stop you from getting the virus. It doesn't stop you from transmitting the virus. However, uh, it does protect yeah. you somewhat yeah. from getting a very serious dose of the virus. So the argument yeah. from, from those who would make it is that, you know, that won't prevent the spread of the disease if schools are spreading it. Mm. Yeah, I, and I can see that. And there is that whole argument that it's not so much that the children are spreading it. It's the fact that all the the movement and traffic involved in schools being open, mm. you know, parents at the gate, deliveries, yes. um, all those sorts of things add to the spread, not necessarily the children themselves taking it home. So there yeah. is an argument on that side. Right. But look, right. it comes back to what we said earlier, that there needs to be a balanced risk approach to this, doesn't it? There's no perfect answer, is there? No. There's no um, easy way forward. We're going to have to take some risks one way or the other. I think so. Uh, and I think it, it as long as it can be shown that there's not going to be any adding to the um, impact on the NHS, mm. which is the fundamental, you know, um, bedrock of everything we're doing here, keep the NHS safe, then I think we should start looking at getting those younger ones back as soon as possible. But I wonder as well, Roger, if, if in fact the reasoning for the lockdown is and, and has quite often been uh, mooted as such is, is the sa is safeguarding of the NHS. You know, you need to weigh that up, surely, with the mental health of our nation's children, because it suddenly looks a lot more um, 
complicated if you compare those two things you know it's one thing to say look we can all give up going to the pub for a while we can all give up going out for a while we can all stop going on holidays for a while but you can't suddenly say that something as negative as this psychological effect on kids versus the protection of the nhs suddenly it's a different conversation isn't it uh, yes look I, I i agree however um there's the reality of the fact that the 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 immediate pressure is patients turning up who can't breathe and are going to die if they don't get oxygen um as opposed to yeah the slow burn you might say of of mental health mm. and um, well-being yes uh, so if we can get over that hump of the the patients turning up at the door um struggling to breathe then you know then we should quickly as possible be taking uh, account as as you say the mental health aspects yes and what about um what the next step should be roger i mean would you favor for example um the government looking at specific areas maybe and doing it that way so that if you were in somewhere like cornwall and there was a very low uh, infection rate of covid you could open the schools there you know if on the other hand in east london it was very high you wouldn't yeah and i think that we need a nuanced approach in general so and i think a lot of this will be putting um responsibility down to school level or academy trusts like ours uh, level mm. so i think it should be regionally based i think that's very sensible because that comes back to is it safe to open the schools without overburdening the nhs yeah i think it should be phased according to the age of the children because all the evidence shows that children uh, younger children are less um, likely to spread the disease mm. and then i think schools should be given the option for instance to work on a rotor basis with the older children so that everybody gets some face-to-face -face time without um, overburdening the, the staff and the building with too many children at the same time. Mm. Up to now, the government has been very rigid, saying, no, when we do reopen, you can't have any rotors. It's got to be full reopening. Right. I think we need a more sensitive approach to this. And who's responsible for that sort of policy? Because that did seem a bit boneheaded, doesn't it? Because you can't, you can't have a one-size-fits-all in these situations. Well, there has been a one-size-fits-all laid down by the Department for Education so far. Mm. Um, that's got to change. Yes, really absolutely. Has. I mean, amazing uh, to see another story uh, in the papers today about private tutoring, that some frazzled parents are spending up to £1,500 a week on private tutors. I can't imagine that's a very big number uh, of people doing that because who could afford to spend that kind of money? But certainly there are parents who are concerned about what happens at the end of this academic year to the exams because we still don't really know whether there are going to be exams and if there aren't how the the grades are going to be arrived at true and i can imagine parents particularly as you say of kids who are coming up towards exams panicking a bit and yeah. thinking what can we do um i would say it, it really shouldn't be necessary to spend that sort of money because schools are particularly focused on those um, age groups that are about to do their exams mm. and they are, are doing everything they possibly can to still prepare them for we don't know what in terms of assessments and, and tests. It's looking as if there will be some um, reduced level exams, um, assessment 
um, tasks of some description, it won't just be left to teacher um, assessment grades like it was last year. Mm, okay. Well, let's hope they don't go too near those algorithms either, which didn't seem to work terribly <laughs> yeah. well. What about the uh, schools that you're opening at the moment? Because you, last time we spoke, Roger, you said that there were a lot more uh, children actually in school, key workers' children, mm-hmm. uh, vulnerable mm-hmm. children as well. Have you spotted any, um, in, you know, sort of incidences of coronavirus? Has there been much of that going on, much infection? Hardly any. Um, we have um, been carrying out uh, mass I'll call it mass, but the numbers are fairly small, but it's known as mass testing um, using the lateral flow tests um, for children who are actually in school. Mm. Um, The number who've tested positive has been tiny, um, you know, maybe one or two out of 100, 150 pupils. That's interesting. But that's still useful because it means that those pupils can go and isolate and not infect the rest. So that's been helpful. No, that has been helpful, I'm sure. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the levels are that low, considering what we're told about this more um, transmissible variant virus, which apparently is is supposedly going everywhere. Well, the only thing thing I'd say there, Mike, is um, that's using the lateral flow test. And the lateral flow test, that was the one that was piloted in Liverpool, um, only picks up high viral loads. Yeah. So it's not necessarily the case that that, that is picking up all the, the pupils who've got any form of the infection. Yes, but I think that's it's good, though, isn't up. it? Because yeah. unfortunately, yes. I mean, otherwise you'll end up being like Sakir Starmer. You can self-isolate every five minutes because you've come into contact with somebody who supposedly had a positive test, even though there might not be anything wrong with them. Certainly, this does pick up those who are most likely to infect others. Mm. Yes. Um, and we found that really useful. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what's the testing next... has got to be part of the way forward. Yes. You know, vaccinate the teachers, give schools enough tests to be able to test pupils that, um, you know, as they come into school. Yeah. How um, disruptive it... is that to your school day, though, if you're doing it to an entire school? Well, it, you couldn't do it on a regular basis. It is being done twice a weekly, twice weekly with the pupils we have in school, but that's mm. very small numbers. Yeah. So that can be done. You're right. Once schools are back in, in full flow, then that won't be possible, which brings me back to let's look at rotors having smaller numbers mm. on site at any one time and sharing out um, face-to-face time rather than having all or nothing. Yeah. We could then do the testing. Sounds like you should be busting down Gavin Williamson's door, giving him some advice. Our, our professional associations are doing that on a daily Excellent. basis, I assure you. Glad to hear it. Roger, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Roger Lake, Chief Executive of Partnership Learning uh, Academy Trust here in London. It's interesting that they use that lateral flow test. One out of 100, one out of 150 kids, uh, and absolutely no massive infection rates going on, despite the fact that many of the schools uh, that Roger certainly runs are still open because they're teaching kids from vulnerable families, but also teaching kids uh, from key workers' families as well. There's definitely got to be an argument about opening the schools carefully, precisely, uh, and with some um, nuance so that you don't just say everything opens and everybody has to deal with it, everybody's back on the bus and everybody's back on the tube. No, do it sensibly, you know, this can't be beyond the wit of man, can it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, we've had one or two little brushes with social media uh, in this organisation here at Talk Radio. Of course, we famously had a little spat with YouTube, uh, which seems to now have been resolved. Uh, they've taken down uh, our channel before uh, we had it reinstated. Uh, there's now a kind of growing call 
for some form of censorship uh, on social media, which has seemingly uh, set the cat amongst the pigeons. But leading the charge, you might find it slightly surprising to know, uh, are the Duke and Duchess of Netflix, no less, Meghan and Harry, uh, who have basically said uh, that they would like to somehow control what it is that people are allowed to say on social media. Well, I'd have one question for them. What the hell's it going to do with you? Let's talk to Emma Webb, Deputy Research Director at the Free Speech Union Associate Fellow at Civitas. She's written a piece for Spiked Online uh, about this. Emma, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. They do make a rather odd couple in all sorts of ways, don't they? Uh, the Duke and Duchess of Netflix, as we like to call them. You know, what on earth uh, are they thinking, um, representing, and who do they think they represent in this kind of quest to silence people? Yeah, so they said uh, last year that they famously wanted to carve out this new progressive role for themselves and one of the ways that they said that they wanted to do this was by eliminating online bullying and hate speech mm. um and uh, before last year one of the first things that they did was they they tacked themselves onto this uh hashtag um stop hate for profit campaign right. which was a sort of social media boycott mainly against facebook making certain demands about the content that they would put up um demanding they get rid of misinformation mm. um and so almost demanding that they create this sort of woke corporate infrastructure where uh, ex experts would evaluate their policies and whether or not uh, certain content had the potential to cause hate and so now what they've done with their horrifically named archiewell foundation <laughs> using <laughs> using their son um to forward their woke agenda so now the archiewell foundation has partnered with a department in UCLA, the University of California, and it's a center called the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Um, and this is run by a, a bunch of two, two woke, uh, I suppose you would call them woke uh, critical theorists, mm. uh, who uh, one of them wrote a book called Algorithms of Oppression. And it's all about how Google is racist, how right. the algorithms um, perpetuate racism, discrimination on the basis of sex, race, and so on. Yeah, it's, it's um, one of those now, things. Isn't now it? it's one of those, well have officially partnered with them. It's one of those things, isn't it, that people talk about? I mean, I found myself um, in some kind of bizarre left-wing sort of debating chamber one day last week where they were debating about reparations to people historically and who should get reparation money and when it should be paid to them and who should be responsible for paying. I thought to myself, you know, there are entire swathes of the world now talking about stuff that most people don't actually give a stuff about. You know, and this is another one, algorithms of, what, what was it, algorithms of hate or something. I mean, you know. Algorithms of oppression. Yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's, well, you know, people, what, what, these people don't have enough uh, to do, clearly. It's also completely inappropriate for um, Harry. He he is a prince. How, however much he removes himself, mm. and um, of course he's sort of uh, he, he he's he's it's almost as if he's wear he's wearing his sort of uh, soldier's uh, khaki with mm. a high vis jacket on top. He yes. really wants to be out of the limelight, but is desperate to mm. to constantly uh, remain relevant. And it's totally inappropriate for the prince to be pushing what is essentially a political agenda um, and also particularly because uh, one of the um, founders of this uh, internet center that they're partnering with um, had co they'd, they the, the founders had co-authored a paper with uh, a U UN special rapporteur that had suggested that the UN should be coordinating um, 
essentially coordinating internet censorship. So the big tech companies' um, practices should be coordinated by the UN. He is involving himself not so much in domestic politics, but in international politics in a way that is completely mm. inappropriate for a mem member of any royal family to be doing. Of course. Um, and also, I think he would find that the majority of the British public not only would think that, that it's inappropriate for him to be trying to censorship the masses, which is an extremely elitist thing to attempt to do, um, as well as the fact that he shouldn't be involving himself with this critical theory ideology. No, I mean, this is the problem, isn't it, for him? Because at the end of the day, uh, he's having to side with these various um, uh, organisations which are inevitably politically driven. It's not about censorship of all nasty people. It's about censorship of nasty people on one side of the argument. You know, like they're all very much excitable uh, about banning Donald Trump from Twitter, but they're not so keen on Antifa being banned. And when they hear about that, suddenly it's all terrible. I mean, I was reading a story today that Facebook have now signed up with a load of uh, a contract with a load of, um, of, of media publishers in this country in order to sort of try and escape being sanctioned by the government. But believe it or not, they've gone into bed with uh, all sorts of news providers, including The Guardian, The Financial Times and Sky News. You know, and you just go, well, you know where that's going, don't you? Yeah, it feels as if uh, following all of the stuff that happened with big tech uh, and their anti-competitive behaviour, trying to prevent even the alternatives in the form of parlour uh, from operating, that they sort of are, are chasing, uh, chasing everybody off of their platforms mm. that they don't agree with and then denying them the possibility of... of um, accessing social media elsewhere at a time when everybody is locked inside and for all of these large corporates and now for a prince and his wife to be using their position to try to censor people that they disagree with on the basis of an ideology that is disputed and shouldn't just be accepted as if it's somehow politically neutral mm. um, I, I that goes beyond winding up normal people I think that this is a is a serious crisis for free speech yeah. and it poses a, a significant threat. Yeah, because, I mean, that's, I suppose, where this conversation ends up, doesn't it? How do you control people who have seemingly no controls other than the ones that they put on themselves. You know, because you look at YouTube, you look at Facebook, you look at Twitter. You know, basically these are run by very successful individuals who are as flawed as any other individual, presumably, uh, but who make policy based on a whim and what they think they want to see and what they think they want to hear. And they clearly do not have take the view that everybody is equal. There's a serious problem, I think, with these large corporates and uh, is perfectly epitomized in harry and megan's involvement as you say that they're not accountable no. that 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 it, it's it poses a an obvious threat um to democracy because there's nothing that can be done to stop to stop these people who have an inordinate amount of power to control the sorts of information that we can access and the sorts of things that we're allowed to think and this has a direct impact on things like our right to a freedom of conscience because if, they want the UN or the Archiewell Foundation or the powers that be internationally uh, to, to um, dictate really what sorts of information we can even consider when making our own minds up mm. about these things. Mm. And that's completely inappropriate. And it betrays a certain arrogance as well, doesn't it? That they believe themselves to be so righteous and so right about everything that only they can judge which horrible, nasty people should be stopped from saying whatever it is that they want to say. And what I find extraordinary is that Harry just sees no irony whatsoever in pointing out uh, the privilege uh, of people 
when he perhaps is one of the most privileged people, one of the top 10 most privileged people in the entire world. God forbid that we should accuse Harry and Meghan of hubris. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it has become... Um, it's it's become an almost an ongoing joke that mm. every now and then they come out with one of these slightly sickly videos lamenting their own leave their us own alone position in, the world, um, in a way that is completely unrelatable for others and and there's a kind of um paternalistic element to this that they seem to be entirely lacking self-awareness mm. that they um are behaving paternalistically in in a way that and i personally speaking i'm a monarchist um, and I can see the arguments from the other side yeah. against the monarchy because of the sorts of things that they're doing. That it's, it's, it goes beyond uh, issues simply to do with free speech to um, complicated international and domestic politics. Um, and they, I don't think that they really understand exactly what they're getting themselves involved in here no. and, and what they're meddling with and what the implications of this are. Uh, I think they they potentially think that they're just being nice and and um, trying to do good in the world and and I don't have the necessarily the breadth of knowledge or the vision to see exactly what the negative implications yeah. of that are on normal people. I take a much less charitable view than you on this, Emma. I think that they know exactly what they're doing and I think it's purely about making money because there's a lot of money in uh, the wokerati out there. There's a lot of money uh, in being the front man and the front woman uh, for a movement for change because it makes you sound like a really good person, uh, you know, because anybody who doesn't want to change anything obviously is an absolute and utter ghastly individual. And that's that's now the narrative. But, you know, I'm interested in how you go from being a relatively unknown actress uh, and a relatively well-known prince to becoming these kind of culture warriors. I mean, I think it can only be a very deliberate move to try and, you know, monetize, you know, woke wokeism. Well, it does seem that there is uh, a, a lot of money and financial incentive for some of these big companies to, you know, jump on the censorship bandwagon. Um, all of them are doing it. And it's something that we've been seeing for a long time in um, with large corporates mm. um, attaching themselves onto particular political causes and, and lobbying. Um, so it's no surprise that in almost setting themselves up as the prince and princess across the water, uh, that they're, and particularly given Meghan's views that she's expressed before, before, you know, um, having managed to achieve such an enormous platform as a princess, uh, and now they have freed themselves from having to do any of the duties that a royal would be expected to do and can focus entirely on their own self-promotion mm. and unfortunately that self-promotion seems to be at the detriment of freedom of speech yes. and freedom of conscience yes it's never stopped either emma it's a great article uh, find it on spikes online emma webb there uh, talking to us from uh, the free speech union deputy research director also associate fellow at civitas i mean it really is quite extraordinary and this is why um, I have always targeted Harry and Meghan, not just because of their ridiculousness, not just because of their pomposity, but because if you allow people like them to somehow think they've got a foothold in how society is framed, they will take that foothold and they will keep climbing up it until such time as they think they're in charge and then they think they can tell you what to do. And there's enough people telling us what to do already without Harry and Meghan joining the particular... Uh, cause isn't there talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.